You're listening to Hebrews Jesus is Better series, preached by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. So, Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 is where we'll be this morning. I just want to make two statements before we begin. Um, There is nothing cute or creative about my introduction this morning. Nothing. Um, This was quite the week of study. And so, two thoughts, and then we'll just dive into the text this morning. Number one, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, is a glorious book. It's glorious. But Hebrews is a difficult book. When we finished on 1 Kings, which lasted for about a year, it was narrative. And narrative is, is hard to preach, to preach right. It just, you have to preach it right. And I was so excited to come into Hebrews because I thought, well, Hebrews will be easy. It's a letter and it's broken down. It's, it's easy enough. And what I found is it's not so easy, right? There, there's some difficulty in Hebrews. And so it is glorious, but it's difficult. And I found that to be the truth this week in studying chapter 3 and 4. And then the second thing I'd say is this. In, in light of introduction, we are a restless people. Most of you can't see me before I come up here to, to preach, but um, when I'm sitting in my seat, usually what you will see is this. That, this shakes, right? And, and it's not so much that I'm nervous, although every time I speak I'm nervous, I am just anticipating, I am restless, it's almost like I can't wait to get started. But I think in view of my own life, that sort of is our culture in a whole. That we are restless people. That we're busy, really busy, doing everything and going everywhere. We cram our life with stuff and busyness. We are people that are stressed out. We are people that are uncomfortable with silence. Right? If that were to continue for another 30 seconds, some of you would really start to squirm. It's silence. There's this endless effort to be accepted and to be found Um, in favor with others. There is sleeplessness, weariness, anxiety, trouble, and discouragement. It, it, It is our society. And so we are, we all are a restless people. And so with that in mind this morning, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 3 and go into chapter 4. And here's what we know as we begin this morning. We know first and foremost that the believers that are written to in Hebrews was a congregation that was struggling. They were worn out. They were weary. They were tired. They were truly contemplating whether they should go back to Judaism that they were saved out of or to continue in a life that was hard and difficult and probably more persecution coming their way. They wanted to quit. We also know that the pastor who writes this letter wants to inspire them and encourage them to be faithful and to persevere, not to quit. 
And in the text this morning, we will see that he wants them to experience a rest. A rest that a previous generation in the Old Testament did not experience and never knew. And so, my plan this morning is to walk through, verse by verse, the text this morning. And so, you'll know where we're going. Don't watch your clock thinking, okay, it's verse 1, and he's been here for a long time. If I do the math, we'll be here for five hours. That's not how it's going to work, all right? But we are going to go through the text. I want to help walk you through it the way I had to walk through it this week, and then make application for our lives this morning that I do believe impacts every person in this room. Our restless hearts. For saved and unsaved alike. Chapter 3, verse number 7. Just to bring you up to speed, the writer begins chapter 3 by telling us that we are to consider Christ, the apostle and high priest of our profession, to look to him. And then he starts to make a comparison between the greatest agent in the Old Testament of Revelation, the Word of God, which was Moses, and Jesus Christ. And he doesn't denigrate Moses. He says Moses was faithful in all of his house. But Jesus Christ built the house. It's a total, it's different in kind. There's nothing to compare. Jesus built the house. Jesus owns the house. It's because of Jesus that there is a house. And then he starts to use this example of a generation from the past that Moses, using the word of God, led. Verse 7. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost said, today if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation provocation, in the day of temptation, in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works for 40 years. He says now to these believers, listen, don't harden your heart as that wilderness generation did. They provoked and rebelled against God. And it says that they put him to the test for 40 years. Okay, 40 years. For our demographics in our church, That's older than most of you here. For 40 years, this generation watched God be faithful, provide, protect, and lead. And yet, in that span of 40 years, they constantly provoked him, rebelled against him, and grieved him. Verse 10 will tell us why. He says, Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation and said... They do always err in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. So God was grieved with these folks for 40 years because, number one, they always go astray in their hearts. Now listen to me. I I hope this morning you know the story of the Exodus. You know the story of the wilderness wandering for 40 years. It would be good for you to read the word, to know what he's talking about. Numbers 11 through 14 is really the crux of this. But we must admit, the wandering through the wilderness was not easy. Okay, just the word wilderness, right, to say, hey, we're in the wilderness is usually not a great vacation destination. Right? Most people say, we're going to the beach, we're going on a cruise. It's not, hey, we're really excited, we're going to the wilderness. And if you're in the wilderness, maybe you took a wrong turn or had a bad travel agent. Just the term itself. 
But think about this. A people of around 2 million are now thrust out of Egypt. No food. No water. No, it wasn't a military. No protection. And so before we just say, yeah, those people, the truth is, it was a hard way to go. Real uncertainty. But God says to them, you had an evil and unbelieving heart. Your heart always went astray. Seeing what they saw, and we can't even imagine the deliverance from Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, the manna from heaven, the water from the rock, and yet in their hearts, where all disbelief starts, they always went the wrong way. What they were saying is, God, your way is not right. We cannot trust your power to deliver us. We can't trust your provision or your promise that you're actually going to take us into this land. He says, they always go astray in their hearts. And, this was interesting to me, they have not known my ways. Which makes me think, number one, that God longs to be known. The God of heaven has spoken. And he wants to be known. He has revealed himself. He has revealed himself through creation. Just look around. And if you can't look around, look at yourself. The marvelous creative power of the God of heaven. He has made himself known through creation. He has made himself known through scripture. The word reveals this God. He wants you. He wants me to know him. And then the ultimate revelation, the Son. If you've ever wondered what God must be like, God said, look to Jesus. If you have known him, you have known the Father. So, he longs to be known, and his ways can be known. This congregation in the wilderness could have easily known his ways. They saw it unfold before them. Verse number 11. But they didn't. So, God says, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And so, unbelieving hearts turning the wrong way, God says, okay, you will not enter my rest. And this is the first time the word is used, rest, in chapter 3, moving to chapter 4. And so, what is he talking about? Because it's important to know this. The rest he is talking about is when they finally end up in the land. And this is not new to them. A matter of fact, back in Genesis chapter 15, when God is giving Abraham this promise, he says, Abraham, I want you to know something. I am your shield. Which is an amazing thing to hear. And your great reward. And I'm going to give you a land. And so he lets Abraham see in this vision as he passes through these sacrifices that the children of Israel would be in slavery for 400 years, but eventually they would get a land. It would be a place of security, protection, and rest. And so when he's talking about rest right now, he's talking about a land. But there's a little bit of a hint here that there's more than just the land. Because even in, in Genesis 15, God first starts and says, Abraham, I am your great reward. And when Israel is about to go into the promised land, God says, these people are stiff-necked. I can't deal with them anymore. 
Moses, they're yours. And Moses said, they're not mine, they're yours. And no one wanted them. And God says, you can go, but I'm not going with you. And Moses says, oh God, listen to this. If you don't go, we don't want to go. And so, right now, the writer is saying, there's a rest that these people didn't experience. And the first thing you know, it's a land, okay? But there's more. And so he goes to verse 12, and he says, Take heed, brother, sister, he's talking to believers, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Unbelief always moves us away from God. Verses 13 through 16. But exhort one another daily, while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit, not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. And it's funny, that last verse, I've read that my entire life, and I never understood that verse. It, it, I did, like, okay, but not all that came out from Egypt by Moses. And what he's saying is, the vast majority didn't believe, but not all of them. Some who came out with Moses did believe, and they did enter. And the two that we know of, Joshua and Caleb. And so, some, most, didn't enter into this rest, but there were some who believed and did. Not everyone missed out but the vast majority did, right? When they numbered the soldiers for Israel, I think it was 800,000 men. That's a lot of guys. And for 40 years, their carcasses fell in a wilderness because they didn't believe and they didn't enter into the rest of God's land. Verse 17 through 19, God is going to reiterate why he was grieved with them. But with whom was he grieved for 40 years? Was it not them who had sinned? He was grieved because of their sin, their disobedience. Verse 18, he was grieved that they believed not. And in verse 19, he tells us again that this is called unbelief. They sinned, they didn't believe, it kept them from that rest. Again, their disbelief was saying, God, your way is not the right way. We don't believe your power, we don't believe your promise. And so they fell. Chapter 4, same thought, continuing the story and the structure. He says, let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us by entering into his rest, and any of you should seem to come short of it. Now listen, this is important. He's talking to believers. He's talking to Christians. And he says, listen, we better be fearful. We better pay attention. You don't want to miss out on this rest. And this is the first clue that there's more to this rest than just land. Because these Hebrews are probably in Rome. They're not even in the land. And yet the writer says, be careful. I don't want you to miss out on this rest that these people missed out on. Look at verse number 2. He says, for unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. Now stop. Don't, don't just read over that. He is making this parallel between these two congregations, the one in the wilderness under Moses, the other in this little church, and it's amazing how similar these two congregations are. Uh, number one, um, they were both part of a new formative movement. In Israel, when this congregation came out of 
Exodus, in a night, a nation was born. And for 40 years they wandered. In the church, the church was new. That was Christ. And he gave the church. And if you want to be a stickler, from the crucifixion of Christ until the destruction of Jerusalem is 40 years. And so these are two congregations now, and he's paralleling them that, that they have much in common. Not only that, they were both led by the word, one through Moses, one through Christ. And what makes this amazing is that they heard the same gospel. Now, how could that be? Did Moses say, hey, I want to walk you through the Romans' road? That's not, that's what happened. But they both heard the good news. Now listen what they heard. Here's what Israel heard, number one. They heard deliverance. And not the banjo type. Not that, right? Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. That's fine. It just comes to me sometimes. Sorry. There's a lot that comes through. But, yeah. but, but they, they heard the hope of deliverance. Here was a nation in bondage and slavery under cruel taskmasters. Moses says to them, I've got good news for you. You're going to be delivered. Right? Do you know we as believers are preached the gospel and the gospel says there is deliverance. And, and far worse than a physical slave master. We have been delivered from sin death, and the grave through Jesus Christ. This is good news. This is the gospel. And if you'll notice, both of those deliverances from Egypt and from sin come by way of a sinless, spotless Lamb of God. They were both delivered. This congregation in the wilderness and the church by the blood of Christ. Not only that, the good news was you will be preserved. God says, I will take you to this land. During the day, there will be a pillar of cloud. By night, a pillar of fire to guide, lead, direct, and protect. I will feed you in the wilderness. You will get bread from heaven. You'll get water from a rock. Your shoes will not fail for 40 years. They must have been Dutch. Wooden shoes, right? I mean, for 40 years... The soles of their shoes never failed. They were preserved, right? God, God cared for them. You know, the believer in Christ is preserved. We have the living water, the bread of life, the spirit and the word. We have been give, given everything for life and godliness that we need. They heard the good news. And the good news contained rest. If they were faithful, in two weeks they could have ended up, maybe three weeks, they could have ended up in the promised land and had rest. I mean, I mean they could have, could have landed in the spot that God had for them. And for the believer, we certainly have rest in Christ, we have rest in death, and we have rest in heaven. But notice in verse number two, this amazing statement. Both these generations were preached the gospel, but... The word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. He says, this one congregation, they heard the gospel. They heard the good news, but it wasn't mixed with faith. Listen, simply hearing the word of God 
is insufficient. This morning, some of you have heard the gospel hundreds of times. Or for some, thousands of times. You have heard the gospel over and over again. And let me tell you something. It doesn't do you any good to just hear it. If that gospel is not mixed with faith, you are lost. You say, well, at least I heard it. No, not at least you heard it. You will be held accountable for hearing it over and over and over again and trampling under your foot the blood of Christ. It doesn't, it, it must be appropriated by faith. The word was not mixed with faith. And for the believer this morning, your sanctification doesn't just happen because you showed up. It happens when you hear the word and by faith you believe the word. Quit leaving the services by saying, good message, really great truth, and doing nothing about it. Stop it. It does nothing for you. The word must be mixed with faith. The only appropriate response to the word of God is faith. I must believe, accept that fact to be true, what I hear, and then trust, rest in it. And the wilderness congregation did not do that at all. If they would have believed that to be true, all they had to do is enter the promised land. And don't get faith, don't, don't make it, faith is real simple, right? Faith is, this is a fact, and now I rest in that. Okay, so, we'll use this chair, since I used it already this morning. So, you and I practice faith every day of our life, every day. And this, this applies to salvation, it applies to everything. I can say, I believe this chair is sturdy, and this chair will hold me. And I believe it will. It looks like it's well made, it looks comfortable enough, it looks like I would like to sit in that chair. But that's not genuine faith. Faith then says, this chair can hold me, therefore, I sit in this chair. And I rest in this chair. And we do this every day of our lives. Every day. You got here this morning by faith. You jumped in a car that you believed would work. Some of you were iffy, but you thought it would work. Right? But you believed it, you turned the ignition, and you went. And this is faith. And so this morning, quit complicating the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not do this, do that. It's resting in his finished work. That's faith. And for the believer today, in our, in our struggle for sanctification and being holy, it's the same thing. I hear the word of God. I trust the word of God. I rest and do the word of God. It's not rocket science at all. And they didn't do it. The difference is the object of our faith. Whether it's in a car or in Christ, it's the object. Verse number three. For we which have believed you enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise. And God rested, and God did rest the seventh day from his works. And this is interesting He's continuing the same thought of rest. But he says, I want to bring up another topic. And he says that God rested on the seventh day. 
And this is weird. You've been talking about a land, and now he transitions over and says, by the way, there's another rest that came before the land, and it was when God rested on the seventh day. And if you remember, God rested. It didn't mean he ceased from work, but he was done. The work was done, and it was good. And so God said, I'm going to rest because what I see now is good. And he uses that illustration to help us understand some things as well, that this rest is already available for the believer. Right? Before the land and after the land, just like God rested, we can rest. And I don't want to get off on a tangent here. Um, I don't. I probably will. Let me look at if I have tangent time. I do. So, so we minimize and disregard God's pattern of rest and rhythm of life all the time. Listen, we as a people are stressed out. We're running here and there. We work nonstop, 24-7, right? And we wonder why in this helter-skelter life, we are stressed, we are worried, we are troubled, we are anemic physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our souls are shallow. Why? We never rest. We never follow God's pattern. And I'm not saying, I'm not talking about the Sabbath, but there is a pattern here that says, God worked six days, he rested. And we don't rest. We never rest. And so the writer says, there is a rest, like God's rest, that we need to enter into. Verse number five. Five through seven. He's going to tell us now that there's room for us to enter in this rest. And in this place again, if ye shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remains that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Again, he limits a certain day, saying to David, today, after so long, as he has said, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. And so he says there's room to enter. Verse number 8. For if Jesus, or Joshua, right, Joshua, Jesus is a New Testament name for Joshua. Maybe the writers of King James were trying to make this comparison between Joshua leading and Jesus leading. But verse 8, it's Joshua. For if Joshua had given them rest, this generation, then would not be afterwards have spoken of another day. And so what he's saying is, now listen, pay attention. If the only rest we're talking about is a land, and Joshua actually led people to a rest, because there were, there were people went into the land, it was a time of rest. If that was all there was, then why in Psalm 95 does David go on and say, hey, harden not your heart, enter into this rest, written four to five hundred years later. And the writer's going to make a point that there is a rest for God's people to enter into. Verse number nine. And 10, there remains therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that has entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. Now, this is really important. Through the entire chapter of 3 and 4, we have seen the word rest over and over again. Rest, 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 rest. But here in chapter 9, that word rest is a different word. It's from the word Sabbath. And it's a Sabbath rest. It's a rest in God, in his goodness. It doesn't involve works. It's the promise of rest in a joyful fellowship, the peace and harmony that believers experience through their new faith in Christ. It's a, it's a life of rest that will enjoy life without pain, struggles, and consumed one day by the very presence of God. There is coming a rest. We enter into it, but there's a rest to come as well. And so in verse 11 he says, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest 
any man fall after the same example of unbelief? He says, strive to enter in. Now, this is really strange. He's telling us to rest. And the rest now we know is more than land. It is rest that we find in Christ. It is fellowship with Christ. There is coming a rest of Sabbath eventually for the Christian. But he says we've got to strive to enter into that rest. That seems counterintuitive. How do you strive to rest? How do you work to rest? And again, he's not talking about salvation here. He's talking about striving for the believer for rest. So we, we look to tomorrow. We look to the future. A Sabbath rest. For the believer, there is a rest coming tomorrow. There is a rest for the future. It is a Sabbath rest when someday, truly, our restless hearts will finally find rest in Him. We will be with God. He will be our people. We will be at rest. At rest. And what he's telling this group of struggling believers is, listen to me, you look forward to the Sabbath rest because when you know the destination, you can survive the journey. And we have forgotten the destination. When we were younger, we would go down to Florida with all of the boys. And so at that time, we were in Michigan. It was a 22-hour drive. And what we would say is this, we're not stopping until we get there. No bathroom breaks. No gas station. The problem I have is when we stop at a gas station, my wife will use the washroom and then get a snack and a drink, which is counterproductive. Because it means we'll be stopping again. And again, and again, and again. But it's grueling to drive all through the night. Why do you do it? Because in my mind, there's a destination that I'm going to, and I want to be there more than anything else. I want to hit the beach. Right? And so I can survive being tired. I can pinch my leg. I can pull the window down and put air on my face. I can drink another energy drink. I can do whatever I have to do to get to where I'm going. The writer of Hebrews says to this church that's struggling, listen, strive to enter this rest. You look to tomorrow. You look to the future. Not right, down, right now. Not with all the stress, anxiety, and fear, but tomorrow. And then he says, Look to today. Today. I want to revisit Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. Because as the future, we look to the future for tomorrow, we look to the face of Christ for today. Jesus says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do you understand the audacity of that statement? Who is this guy to say to the world, hey, come to me, and I myself will give you rest. And it's interesting to note that he says, who labor and are heavy laden, who labor and are heavy laden. Um, he is speaking now about the weight that the Pharisees have been putting on people for acceptance and approval to God and to men. If you don't believe that, the next chapter, chapter 12, is all about the Sabbath day and the problem that they have. They were striving for acceptance and performance, the never-ending, wearisome cycle of measuring up and being approved of by men. And Jesus says, stop it. Stop it. If you're tired of the rat race, if you're tired of the performance, if you're tired of all the acceptance that you think you must have, he said, stop, 
Come to me, and I will give you rest for your soul. For your soul. The ceasing from striving, a freedom from worry, a settled security in him. He is my value. He is my worth. It is an unshakable trust. Jesus is telling us what the writer of Hebrews is reminding us, that rest is not in a place. It wasn't just in the land. There was more to it than that. And I want you to know something this morning. Christian, your rest is not in a vacation spot. Or in Disney. By all means, not in Disney. Or in your bed. We, we think, oh God, I'm exhausted, I'm tired, I'm weary, I'm worn, I'm troubled, I'm anxious. So what I need is to go to this place and find rest. And Jesus says, No. It is not in a place. It is not in the land. It is not what you want it to be. Nor is it in a program. If I only exercise more, I'll be refreshed and I can rest. If I only binge on Netflix, then I'll feel good about myself. By the way, do you know the CEO of Netflix? You know what he's competing against? Not Amazon, not Disney. Your sleep. He said it himself. We compete with your sleep because what we want you to do is binge all night long. Now, let me ask you a question. When we do those things, do we feel refreshed? I don't. How many of you folks have been on a vacation before, and when you came home, you said, I need a vacation? Right? Right. Well, why is that? You should have had rest. You should be refreshed. You should be ready to go. Because that cannot produce the rest that Christ is talking about. It can't. Nor can the program. You can binge on Netflix all night long, and the next day you will not feel refreshed. I promise you. It is not in a program. It is not in a place. It is in a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. We need to strive to enter into that rest for both today and tomorrow. It is worth fighting for. And what we fight against is our unbelief. Now, I'm talking to believers now, because as believers sometimes, we, like this foolish generation, don't believe God's way is right, we don't believe his power or his promises, and we go to other places to find our rest. In, in Jeremiah chapter 2, this is not on the screen, verse 13, God says to his people, two evils have my people committed. One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. And two... They have hewn out their own cisterns that are broken. Is that not the life of most of us? Okay, God, yeah, I get it. I get it. I hear you. I hear your promises. I hear all of it. But I got this other way. So we forsake the living God of water and refreshment, and we find something else to fill us and to satisfy us and refresh us. And what I'm telling you is that will never happen. We must fight against that. We must fight against the unbelief in our hearts. We must believe that Jesus Christ is the true rest, and he is better than the stuff. He's better than the world. He's better than the struggle. He's better than the stress. He's better than the suffering. He's better than all of that. And then by faith, we act on that as seen by what we say and what we do. What's really important to you this morning? Well, it's obvious by what we say and what we do. It's obvious. And so... Our souls are rejuvenated by the living Jesus Christ.
And this morning, there's a call for believers to rest in him. Now, if you're lost without Christ this morning, your restless heart will not find rest in anything but Jesus Christ. And I encourage you this morning, not just to hear the word, but sit in the chair to rest on him. He finished the work. He paid the price. He died, was buried, and rose again for your justification and to make you reconciled with God. So trust him. But for us as believers, in our restlessness, in our culture, there is a rest for us to enter into as well. And we're just not taking advantage of it. We must strive to enter in. We must fight the disbelief, unbelief in our own hearts and come to Christ. You know how this works, right? And, and, and you know this to be true. Um, so, Wednesday nights, we have prayer meeting. And it happens at 6.30. I don't know what it is about Wednesday nights. It's, it's the hump day, right? There's not a Wednesday night that goes by that I don't say to myself, ah, I'm exhausted. I should be in bed at 6.30. I should be in bed, right? That's what we do at 50. I should be in bed. And so I come, and I'm weary, and I'm worn, and the truth is my flesh really struggles with that. And there are times when at home, at night, I'm exhausted, and I think, hey, let's watch something on Netflix. We'll just veg out for a couple hours. And I do. Both those things take place. But can I tell you something? Almost every time on a Wednesday night, when we're done fellowshipping with one another, opening the word, and praying, I'm refreshed. I'm rejuvenated. There is a sense that I have rest in my soul because I've been fed by the living bread and I've communed with him. And there are times when Netflix goes for one, two, 18 hours. Not really. But it's empty. And I'm weary and worn and tired. And so this morning, let us as believers have our souls rejuvenated in the one who says, come, I will give you rest. I'll give you rest for your soul by living and resting in his work, his power, his strength, and his way. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And for today we do it, and for our Sabbath rest we do it, that there is coming a day for the believer. We enjoy the rest now, and we can. But there is coming a day, and he will be our God, and we will be his people, and the former things will not be remembered anymore. May we strive to enter into that rest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. And Lord, I, I don't know what you are going to do in the lives and hearts of your people. I do pray that we would see the rest that we need comes by way of Christ and Christ alone. Lord, that we quit striving, filling our lives with junk and nonsense, not believing your way to be the right way, not refreshing ourselves with the living word, the water of life. Lord, help us to look to you. And Father, if there be one here this morning who doesn't know you as Savior, I pray that today would be the day that they would finally rest their troubled soul in what Christ has done, to call upon his name, to receive him as Savior, 
to be born again by your spirit. This is our prayer. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd bless this time of reflection to think about what you'd have us to do in this area of faith. In Jesus' name, amen.